This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. I'm Virginia Pillion. I'm Willoughby Hardesty. We are delighted to have with us in person the indelible Barbara Comstock, who currently serves as a senior advisor with Baker Donaldson on the board of Issue One, and most importantly, as a scholar at the Center for Politics. Barbara was elected to Congress in 2014 and served two terms representing Virginia's 10th congressional district, making her the first woman elected to that seat. She was named one of the top 10 most effective lawmakers in the 115th Congress by the Center for Effective Lawmaking, which is a joint effort of the University of Virginia and Vanderbilt University. Barbara also serves as an ABC News political contributor and appears regularly on CNN, PBS, and MSNBC. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wonder if you can start by sharing how you first became involved in politics. Well, great to be with you as a UVA mom and a fellow. It's delightful to always be at UVA. And I was interested in politics from my youngest days because I'm from Massachusetts, so I was from a political family. My uh, grandfather on my dad's side had been a town selectman. Um, My mom loved being involved in politics and so kind of grew up always watching elections, watching conventions. And, you know, by high school, I wrote in my school newspaper in college. Um, when George H.W. Bush came to my school, I got to go interview him and did and kind of followed him around in Vermont, went over to the New Hampshire primary, was there actually when he lost in 1980. Um, and just and then came to Washington as an intern and uh, then came here for law school and and continued to uh, be active, you know, throughout, you know, my married life, and then um, went to work on Capitol Hill for my congressman, uh, who was Frank Wolf, who I then later uh, ended up replacing (laughs) when he retired. You were an elected member of Congress from the Republican Party. In recent years, the Republican Party has undergone significant changes in its ideology and leadership. What factors do you believe have contributed to this shift, and what does it mean for the future of the party? Well, from 2016 on, when Donald Trump came on the scene, I think that's been very detrimental to the party. I mean, he's been very anti-democratic. And obviously, um, since January 6th, when he refused uh, to accept the the results of the election that he lost, and the election denialism and the, you know, coup and the refusal to this day to accept uh, the results of the election, it's been very destructive and his um, you know, continuance to lead this insurrection caucus that he leads has been very destructive, not only to the party, which I think he has been very toxic and poisonous to, but, but to the country. Um, and, and you've seen the results and you know, he lost the house in 18, he lost uh, the Senate, the White House. And then last year, all these candidates in these swing states that he anointed then lost. Again, so if the party chooses to um, nominate him again, I think uh, it's pretty clear that in the swing states he would lose again. So um, he's been very destructive, and I think he will continue to be. I certainly hope he will uh, not be nominated again, but I am confident that that at least the 5 to 7% 
of you know because that will leave the party because of him um, that those in those swing states that um, that he would lose them again um, the same you know many of the same states that he lost in 20 he would he would lose again certainly Pennsylvania Michigan Wisconsin perhaps Arizona Nevada and even Georgia that he continues to lose but I, I think his anti-democratic uh, tendencies I mean his attack on Ukraine just recently when he I mean that he stands with Putin that the very that he um, attacks and divides the American people that he says we're the problem it's incredibly destructive and sad and and destructive and until people uh, turn against that I think it will that it's first and foremost bad for the country but I I'm very proud of um, people like Liz Cheney, uh, who I'm thrilled is here at UVA and all uh, the good things that she did with the January 6th committee. And um, and also Adam Kinzinger, whose board I'm on and proud that uh, uh, last year, the secretaries of state that um, uh, we put in place who aren't election deniers and all the good work that he and uh, Liz did that I'm proud to associate myself with. And um, I think we'll be able to continue to make sure that election deniers don't uh, get put in those positions of power. Proud of the people, uh, you know, like Mitch McConnell, who are standing um, with Ukraine, that President Biden has continued to support Ukraine and that we have a bipartisan uh, caucus, a bipartisan caucus that has stood with President Biden on Ukraine. And I certainly hope that Republicans will continue to support that because I think that is one of the most important issues of the day. In the 2022 midterm elections, many political analysts predicted a red wave, allowing the Republican Party to retake control of Congress. There may have been a red wave in some states, but there was a blue undertow in the most competitive states. Exit polls, if they are to be believed, suggest that turnout among 18 to 29-year-olds, and especially women in this age demographic, showed an even more pronounced shift toward Democrats. What does this mean for Republicans, and more specifically, Republican women such as yourself? Well, I do think, um, well, we always know that young people are our future, and I do think both uh, young people and women uh, did leave the party because of that, uh, the anti-democratic um, sort of those Trump-endorsed candidates, Carrie Lake in Arizona, um, the whole Michigan uh, ticket that went, um, the trifecta that went in and they flipped the House and the Senate in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania, you had, you know, anti-Semitic, anti-Democratic, Trump-endorsed a governor candidate where Josh Shapiro um, trounced uh, that ticket. And then, of course, the Senate Trump-endorsed candidate also lost there. Uh, in Georgia, the Trump-endorsed uh, candidate, uh, Herschel Walker, lost, while um, the Republican candidate won, in, uh, who Trump attacked, uh, Governor Kemp, and then Brad Raffensperger, who famously, told, who, a Republican who told uh, Donald Trump that he did not win Georgia, he uh, you know, won by 10 points. So showing that a Republican who said no to Donald Trump can win, while a Republican who embraced the big lie, Herschel Walker, lost. So you can see the difference, you know, even in a red state like Georgia, where it's not that um, Republicans, you know, that people said no, but there was 
certain number of Republicans who just said no to Donald Trump. And so in those swing states, um, they're saying no to Trumpism. And I thought that was a healthy sign. And I think there's that five to 7% of us people like myself, but also young people who are just rejecting this anti-democratic nature of this surly ugliness of Trump. And until people wake up to this, I mean, I had so many people talk about this red wave and I was watching the um, focus groups of a good friend of mine, Sarah Longwell, who writes for the Bulwark and was doing these focus groups all year in these swing states, Cary Lake and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia. And she was seeing this all year. And as I watched the focus groups, I said, boy, are they, do you think that's what they're saying is what I'm feeling? Is this true? And her focus groups were dead on. So I would encourage people to watch them this year um, because they're saying very similar things. And um, I don't think Trump can, you know, you hear all these people saying, oh, if Trump is indicted, he's going to, he's going to win, you know, he'll win big. Well, if he wins the primaries, that doesn't mean he's going to win the general election. So it's very different whether he wins the primaries or wins the general. So it's a very different uh, demographic on who's going to win the general. So, you know, uh, no, I was certainly worried in Arizona with Carrie Lake because uh, the general election candidate there, the Democrat, certainly that looked much closer. So, you know, those, that was the kind of place where, you know, and that was close, but um, hats off to, she was doing better than, than uh, people thought, the, the governor, Democrat governor candidate there, that was a close one. Certainly Nevada was close, but I think you just had this silent majority. And, and I know in Michigan too, I was talking to somebody recently at the first principles conference, because I've uh, done some work with those, I mean, just been involved with that group. And they were saying they talked with a lot of voters there who were sort of bullied by their MAGA families who were saying, you have to vote with us. And they, and they just said, no, we don't. And they were, you know, quietly just rejecting the, the MAGA bullies who were thinking they, they were just like, no, we're sick of this. We don't want to, we're Republicans, but we're not going to go this direction. So I do think you're going to see more of this um, next year. And it's not that they're not Republicans, but they're not going to follow this sort of uh, destructive path of the MAGA bullies. And I think particularly young people don't, you know, they, they, they like the, you know, I mean, I grew up in the sort of sunny optimism of, of positive Republicans who wanted to be inclusive, to add people, to have all kinds of Republicans who are, you know, they didn't want to kick people out. You hear Marjorie Greene saying, we don't want people like this. Carrie Lake famously the weekend before her election said, if you're a John McCain Republican, get the hell out of here. Who kicks people out? I mean, I was, when I had Democrats who wanted to be part of my team, I was like, great, come on in. I wanted Democrats, independents, Republicans. I Politics is about addition, not subtraction. And Donald Trump is like proud to kick people. They're like, we got rid of these people. He's kicking people out. The Steve Bannons, they're proud to kick Republicans out. And if you look, and you're exactly right, he is shrinking people, the party. And here in Virginia, uh, when I looked at my, my old district, because I'm in the 8th district now with redistricting, but in the 10th district, 
fewer Republicans voted in the 10th district than in 2018, the last um, midterm. There were fewer Republicans that voted, not more. People had this idea that because they go to these big rallies, there's more. There were fewer Republicans that voted in 2022 than 2018. In the 7th district, fewer Republicans than in 2018. Um, I'm not sure about the second, but so they're, they're shrinking the party. And because they're just talking to themselves, because they just go to these rallies, they're thinking, oh, these are big crowds. Well, it's because they're just talking to themselves. They don't realize they're not growing the party. They're just kind of going to these big gatherings and, they, and they're not looking at the numbers and they're not realizing that they're not adding and um, you have to add, <laughs> and 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 we're sh- and Donald Trump is shrinking the party, and that's a big problem. Increasingly, we're seeing the politicization of election administration, voting safety, and voting rights. Um, and I know this is an area that you do some work in on boards of other of other organizations, um, and so. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what's contributed to the trend and also what can be done to address some of the really pressing challenges because of the polarization, the hyper-partisanship that is now creating divergent access and political participation based on uh, which party controls a state legislature. Yeah, that, that is a troubling aspect of it. And I work with Issue One, which is a totally bipartisan group. And, and we started um, really working on this issue before 2020 because we knew whoever won, there, was, there were going to be people who were really upset about it either way. You know, if Donald Trump won, people were going to be upset and mad. So we, we wanted to, you know, we had even numbers of us former members who were working together to kind of calm the waters. And so we've continued to work on those issues. Um, We worked together on the Electoral Count Act, which fortunately got passed at the end of Congress last year. And now we're working to get more money into the states to be able to have more money um, for election resources to go for, um, you know, to be able to for election officers to have the resources to be able uh, to be able to you know to, to count the votes and to be able to have election officers and to be able to have more places open for voting to be able to have you know more polls open to be able to you know at states that have that absentee voting and I'm happy to see more Republicans are talking about they have to embrace you know even on Fox News they're saying hey maybe we should support having. Um, absentee voting and supporting that. I've always supported absentee voting because guess what? Busy professionals need to have absentee voting. You know, if you're a doctor, guess what? You know, you might have emergencies on election days and you're not going to leave your patient on the operating, uh, you know, uh, on the operating table to go vote. You know, you have to be there. You know, I actually had a, a very close friend who was on an operating table, you know, I mean, in the emergency room on election day. And so you have to be, you know, uh, open to having, uh, you know, absentee voting. And, and now people are much more open to that. And it's a good thing. And, and souls to the polls, why not have Sunday voting? If you're a parent, you know, you got soccer games, you've got a lot of things to do. And, and if you're a small business, 
And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, here in Virginia, we have all kinds of, you know, businesses that are, you know, open all day Saturdays, you know, and, and minority business owners who are very busy, you know, on weekends and nights, and they need to have polls that are open at a lot of different times so they can get, um, you know, do those absentee voting. So I think people are being much more open to that now. And I'm happy to see that both longer and make it easier for them. And and we want to have more funding for that. And so, I mean, Donald Trump may not be open to that, but the reality is if you're a smart politician, you got to work with the rules that are in your state and it is what it is. So you, if you want to win, I mean, I won close races um, with absentee voting and with, um, I mean, I, I mean, I supported having, you know, having to show your ID, but I won races with showing your ID and without showing your ID. So, you know, we, we should accept the results of the election. Sore losers like Donald Trump have poisoned the system, made it dangerous, and we need to work to restore that. And I think that's some issue one has had a lot of bipartisan work put on that. And I think every elected official, regardless of party, should do everything they can to restore that, what was always in place. And when I was in Virginia, both on the state level and on the federal level, we always, we never saw anything like what Trump has done. I mean, I had people who didn't call me to concede, but they never did anything crazy like he's done. The New York Attorney General's office has recently discussed indicting President Donald Trump. What are the potential consequences of these charges and what sort of precedent may this set? Well, I think there's certainly a lot of charges. I think the January 6th charges, the Georgia charges, probably are the more serious charges. I certainly think um, those charges are um, certainly charges that I would hope um, are brought. I think the January 6th committee brought um, a lot of issues there that I would hope um, we're going to see him charged with. And uh, some of the document charges that are now going forward in D.C. Um, I actually, I used to work with Evan Corcoran in um, Frank Wolf's office, uh, oddly enough. And you know now he has to testify um, about uh, is the crime fraud exception that uh, whether Trump lied to him about uh, whether or not he had documents. And, and that's pretty rare that a judge will say you have to testify on that. Uh, so all of those cases, I certainly, I, I think you probably are going to see charges there. The case in New York, probably, I think, you know, experts agree that's probably the weakest, but nobody has seen the charges yet. So I think all of the hoopla and everyone out there uh, attacking the prosecutors is really unfair. Let's let everyone see the charges. Let's everyone calm down, read through the charges. Uh, it's, you know, I think if anyone uh, deserves uh, being charged for things, certainly on January 6th, it would be Donald Trump. And everybody said you can't indict a sitting president. Well, he's not sitting anymore. He is a former president, and he certainly got away with a lot of things while he was president. I would have voted for impeachment while he was in there. I would have been with Liz Cheney on that, um, and the 10 people who, 10 Republican of my former colleagues who voted 
for impeachment. So certainly think he uh, should be held accountable on uh, those January 6th charges uh, that I expect he'll see now. But I think on on the other things, let's wait and see and give some of it. But I think the attacks that are that that he is making endanger not just the prosecutors, but in, he's always endangered people the way he endangered people. It frightens me. I mean, having on January 6th, I had many of my staff who were on the Hill that morning. I called my kids who, one of whom, were, you know, works on the Hill um, in politics, you know, I mean, was exactly right on the Hill, but I, I called, they said, don't go near the Hill. Called my former staff, don't go up there today if you don't have to. I know Adam Kinzinger told his staff to stay at home. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some of my staff did go up to work that day. I had a real fear and dread that day that something bad was going to happen, but I didn't imagine how bad it would be. But I knew because of the kind of threats that he made and what he was doing, that it was going to be bad, never fearing it was that bad. And remember, um, you know, I know Liz doesn't, Liz Cheney doesn't talk about it that often, but that day when he, he made threats against Liz Cheney, you know, uh, you know, he attacked her and I'm recalling correctly, um, Vice President Cheney called alarmed about that, called her to say, hey, he's just attacked you. Because when he makes threats like that, the threats against the members go up. When he makes a threat like you, I know, you know, against you, you get those, you get the calls, you get threats against you. Um, you know, I get when he does that, you know, done a few times to me, you get the nasty phone calls, you get the, I hope something awful happens to you. But when he does that against Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger or somebody or against a prosecutor, you know, you get the kind of death threats. And at this point, he knows that. Yeah. So when he does that, it's, it, you know, at this point, he knows what he's inciting. And so it's really frightening. And I do get that real fear again, because I, I remember how I felt on that day and, and to have people minimize it again. Um, uh, Because I just remember sitting there that whole day. So I I do work with ABC and I was on the phone with ABC, on the phone. I was texting with members, calling staff, where are you? And when we got our our door blocked, I've, you know, we're kind of hiding under a desk and just feeling that just sick to my stomach that I can't believe this is going on in our country and just how awful everyone felt. And if you go back and whenever you see what was going on, kind of like, the, you know, and you read what was going on in real time and you see that video, remember how sick everyone felt in real time and how quickly everyone can forget it. And the idea that he might be nominated, Trump might be nominated again, and that he's trying to incite that again. Now, I don't think he could, you know, when he said protest, protest, and that he's trying, you know, he is trying to bring that back again. There's that there are people who would call out DeSantis but won't call out him is in my party. It's still sad and that, that he still might win a nomination is, is it, of a major party is, is pretty sad. So, you know, what can you do? But you I but the but I also feel confident that if they choose that, that there are enough of us that I think is still growing 
that will say no to it. And it's the young people who are the future who've said no. And that it's the women who will also leave and say no again. So yay, young people. <laughs> Go girls. <laughs> Representative Barbara Comstock, thank you so much for taking the time to share your depth of experience and expertise with us. We're really grateful to have you as a scholar at the Center for Politics um, and for taking the time to talk with our students today. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.